It's The Mill with Anthony Weiner on WABC. Taking a step back to look at things with a new perspective. It's The Mill with Anthony Weiner. Thank you for meeting me in the middle an hour every Saturday at 2 when we take some steps away from the hot takes of the far left and the far right and try to bring some context to the news of the week or a subject that doesn't find its way into the middle of the conversation. Uh, Brian Adams bringing us in with New York. New York, so great to have you along. You can listen to us on the radio, 77 WABC or WABCradio.com. We'll be here till 3 o'clock. Then Curtis Lewa comes in for left versus right. Curtis back from the... Chinese New Year's Parade, and he will be reporting on that. We're talking about Eric Adams a little bit. You can also hear this as a podcast. We love it when you stream it live. You can hear it as a podcast as well. If you'd like to be part of the show, there's lots of ways to do it. You can always tweet at me, at Rep Wiener, Wiener, W-A-B-C at gmail.com, or 800-848-W-A-B-C, 800-848-9222. Christian will take care of you on the phones. Ryan taking care of the board. It's been a nice week. A week I got a chance to spend a little extra time with Jordan. He had off on Monday, as many of us did, for Martin Luther King Jr. birthday. Great programming here at the station that day. We went that night to another Islander game out at UBS Arena. I guess my record of attending Islander games at UBS is now one in six. We are going to lose. If you see me, if you see me show up there, as Jordan has reminded me now, probably means we're going to lose. We're up three nothing against Washington. We are going to lose if. A lot of uh, a lot of um, expat Russians there because you've got obviously Sorokin, the goalie for the Islanders, but also Ovechkin was in town. Um, and we went to the I tell you, we went to the game a little bit different way. You know, usually I live on the e- in the the east side of Manhattan, by the East Village. And usually what I do is I take I take the train over to Penn Station, and then get the Long Island Railroad from there. But this time I went in the other direction, took the L out to East New York to get the train there. And, um, and Jordan says to me, uh, Jordan says to me on the way back, you know, it's kind of late, 11 o'clock, 1130, and we're at the East New York L train station. He's like, Daddy, are you showing me where, where they have crime in New York? Because <laughs> I took, it is a little bit of a forbidding station out there. Um, also this week, got a whole lot of mail about last week. You know, I talk about all these heavy, important issues, I think, and I prepare all these important conversations, I think. And this week, all anyone want to talk about was how I, I screwed up the advice I was giving people about my cast iron pan. I told you last week that I got a cast iron pan. It had changed my life. I really enjoy cooking with it, whatever. Except the mistake I made was that I said you rinse it out when you – with a little soap and water when you're done, and then treat it with oil after that. So at the very end of the show, Tommy from Brooklyn called in. He said, no, you're not supposed to use soap. And I kind of blew by him on that. I didn't really acknowledge that, but he was pretty vociferous about it. He said his mother-in-law told him this. And um, and then Jason, who's my brother, you've heard me mention him on, on the show a few times. He's a chef. 
He's got restaurants out in uh, he's in Palm Beach. He's got one out in East Hampton. That's the original one. It's called Almond. It's amazing. He's an amazing chef. I, mean, I hate to say this because he might be listening. And I mean, let's face it. He's the he he is he is the wiener with actual marketable skills. You know, in the coming apocalypse, no one's going to be looking for people who speak about debt ceilings. They are going to be looking for people who can be themselves. And so J- J- Jason is is great at that. But he, they all gave me the same advice. They say, put the pan in the oven and let it bake with some salt on it and then wipe out the salt. And the salt serves, I don't know, as an abrasive or whatnot. So I follow Jason's advice. I follow Tommy's advice, which was to put it in the oven. Tommy said a lower temperature. Jason said, no, you really want to cook it. As a matter of fact, and I have the text right here. He said, let it smoke. And he said, put a half an inch of kosher salt in it. Well, half an inch of kosher, thats it seemed insane to me. Anyway, so I do this. I put the kosher salt in. And I only—I have the problem because the first few times I cooked it, although the pan said you didn't need to season it, it said it came from the factory seasoned. It, I cooked some chicken in, and some of it got burnt a little bit on there. So there's like little spots where you can see the and, – and so I haven't known how to clean it out. And so, well, long story short – I, I almost burned the, the building down. I, I, you know, it started to smoke. And when salt and fat and whatever it is smokes, it's not a normal kind of smoke. I didn't really quite notice it. The superintendent of the building came to my door and and said they've had complaints. And my my apartment stinks to high heaven because I did. And I don't think I'm any better off than I, I mean, I. And then I go online and I look up the advice on this, and some people say actually a little soap isn't the worst thing in the world. Anyway, you know, what's the purpose of having of having an experienced chef in your family if he's going to – and not that. His, oh, his texts are so snarky. Like, this is, every idiot knows you don't put soap in the thing. And he's right. And by the way, he you know, he says Tommy is right in this text. I, I mean, okay, Tommy from Brooklyn is right. And so thank you for Tommy for calling him. But anyway – so it has been um, a week of a lot of smoke in my apartment. Now i got to figure out how to get that out. I'm going through cans and cans of Febreze spraying it everywhere. i got candles lit, and it still smells like a burning pan. I mean, it's not the pan's fault, I'm sure. It's my fault, but still, I wish we'd get some consistency about how to deal with this situation. Um, so let's get to some of the numbers of the week. Each week we do some numbers that are in the news that bring some context to the thing. The first number comes from my old friend, Paul, uh, my old friend, um, who sent me this? I now I, I care. Oh, Jeff, my friend Jeff sent me this. He said 29, 29 years since the Giants won a playoff game and then didn't reach the Super Bowl that year. And they are an eight point underdog today against Philly. Look, I'm a Jets fan. Ob- objectively looking, is there any part of the Giants lineup that they're better than the Eagles? I mean, a single one. Jordan, by the way, is suddenly an Eagles fan, but whatever. But that's a good luck to the Giants. Hope they do well tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about. Um, I think Rudy Giuliani is having a having Sid over to watch the game. That should be interesting. And there's some rumors they're going to have some special guests. All right, this is an interesting. 319. That's how many days tomorrow we will have gone without any measurable snow, meaning a tenth of an inch or less, and it will be tied for the longest, the third longest snow drought in history. If we make it to February 4th, we will break the record. It'll be 333 days since the last snow. I'm looking outside now. It looks a little bit gray in the sky, but I think it's too warm for snow. Next number, 68. 68 days from the time that Joe Biden's people first found classified documents were discovered until it was revealed to the public. 
And I talk about this on my podcast, The Middle Unplugged, which is episode 13 this week. Go get it. Download it. I talk about secrets. I have a little bit of a different take. I'm glad they, they have prosecutors appointed for both of these things. But as I talked about last week, I did some research on just how many documents each year are getting classified and what a bad job we do both deciding what to get classified and also keep an eye on them. But today the issue that I want to talk about is one we're not going to dwell on it too long, but there is uh, 102. 102 is how many times Congress has approved debt limit modifications since the end of World War II and the present to accommodate changes in the federal debt levels. And they have to do it again, another number of the week, $31.4 trillion. That's what our national debt is. That's what we hit this week. That's what the, the limit was, and that's what we struck. And why is this an issue? You know, look, no one seriously thinks we shouldn't pay our bills. And for those of you who have not heard all the talking about this, this is not authorizing any new spending. This is just saying, you know, if you have a T-bill in your portfolio, if we've lent money before, you've got to pay interest on those things. This just allows us to issue more debt and to pay interest on those things and to, to, to issue more debt and to basically pay our bills. And it and it's only an issue. It dates back actually to World Wars. In World War One, there were a lot of isolationists, as all of us know from our history. And as a way to assuage them, to convince them that we weren't going to get into a forever war, they said, okay, you, Congress, we can decide each year how much to raise, how much we can borrow for the war. And there were lots of different types of debt and bond at the times, and each one of them would have their own vote. And then in World War II, as we run up to World War II, it got consolidated because the same Congress – well, it was a different Congress, obviously, many, many years later. But the same Congress said, no, this is inefficient to have many different votes that we have on all these different debt instruments. Let's just have one vote. And then who and who it is that this debt is to – well, first of all, everyone listening to this program, probably U.S. firms, U.S. banks, pension funds invest in, tr- in T-bills, Social Security trust fund, for example. Social Security, when you pay in Social Security and it goes into the trust fund, it doesn't just – there's not a, a, a whole pile of dollar bills sitting in a, a vault somewhere. We take that money and buy T-bills and help fund the rest of the government. So Social Security, your 401K, anyone who would want to have some liquid – and want to have stability, you buy treasury bills. And that's one of the, that's the principal thing that is, that is, that needs to get extended. Um, and also foreign countries do. You know, we hear about this all the time. We are what's called a reserve currency in the world, meaning every country, even if you think they're big, powerful countries like China or Saudi Arabia or, or something like that, when they have cash, they too want to be sure that it's safe and secure. And so they buy dollars in the form of borrowing from us. Now, just to think about what an advantage that gives us. They're all borrowing from us um, and buying our debt. Um, we have the ability. We're the reserve currency. We don't have to go through that through that process. So foreign countries have it as well. But in recent years, there is no doubt about it that um, our debt has exploded. Uh, uh, 230 years of running up debt, 25% of all of our debt was just in the last four years under Donald Trump. So that exploded Deficits are coming down a little bit, so we're borrowing a little less. The, our deficit, which is the year-by-year year annual expenditures of the government, is down about 50% in the last two years. But any conversation about this, even though I think everyone agrees on both sides of the aisle, we've got to increase the debt ceiling so that we can pay our bills, having a conversation about how our money in the United States is collected and spent is good. 800-848-WABC, if you want to get in on this, 800 848 Nine two two two. So any conversation about this 
you know, people say oh, it's irresponsible. Well, it's irresponsible not to raise the debt limit, but it's not irresponsible to ask some 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 tough questions. You know, the new speaker apparently as part of the deal to get the votes, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, said he would press for budget cuts as part of the debt ceiling vote. Well, that's they're probably not going to work out exactly like that. But he said, interestingly, he said that he wouldn't touch defense spending. Well, I doubt he's going to cut Social Security or Medicare, right? I mean, even Donald Trump tweeted out this week that that would be a bad thing to do. So there's not much left. I mean, I'll give you a sense of this. Um, mandatory spending or direct spending is 63% of our entire budget. That's thing like Social Security, Medicare, veterans benefits, things like that that you're eligible for when you reach a certain age, a certain amount of service. That's 63% of the budget. So unless you're going to say that some people who are eligible are not eligible anymore, that's 63 right out the door. 8% is interest on our debt. When we borrow money, we have to pay interest, whatever the T-bill rate is very low, but you know we've got interest on this, 8%. So the other 30%, that's about you know 30%. The other 30% is evenly divided between defense and non-defense, so like 15%. So if you don't touch the defense, you are left with only 15% of the budget. And even if you, like, say we're going to get rid of all transportation funding, we're going to get all health spending, we're going to get all inspections of our food, all of our agriculture spending, all of that, you still don't have a lot to work with. So it's easier said than done. But I'm glad we're having this conversation. I know, I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation. It's good. But – Look, at the end of the day, we have to raise the debt. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to tell you about a time when we didn't have to raise the debt ceiling. And I am going to announce the new mascot for our show, The Middle. When we come back, 800-848-WABC, 800-848. And as we go out, let's have a little rap music about the debt ceiling. But you were a doubt in time. 30 is the last trigger I'll ever need. I swear, I promise. Britain and spending for businesses we see hurt. So much theater stimulus, they call me Pee Wee Herman. It's like we're spending junkies just getting the itch. Can I have another trillion? I promise my district is rich. It was a crisis before we took the lesson to heart. By spending so much money, now with Britain pressing the charge. Spending billions and billions on military gear. Did any wind up with the enemy? What do you want to hear? Raise the debt ceiling. Raise the debt ceiling. Raise the debt ceiling. Raise the debt ceiling again. Raise the debt ceiling. Raise the debt ceiling. Raise the debt ceiling. Raise the debt ceiling again. Back up in the bed and we still super slow. Some are printing lots of money while we working remote. Still dropping IOUs in every fund. Yes, sir. Hamilton started this place. That's why the printer goes burr. Prices are rising at every venue. It's bad. And for sure that dollar menu looks especially sad. Gas prices are rising. It's getting hard for the competition. Cost an arm and a leg. Where am I? The Saudi consulate? Inflating the money. You should give it a try, son. And one used to sink your battleship. Now it's what you used to buy one. Just say the magic word. I'll set the printer above. Charm am I right out of paper, son? But guess who never does? Raise the debt ceiling. Raise the debt ceiling. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner, 77 WABC. Raise the debt ceiling, raise the debt ceiling, raise the debt ceiling, raise the debt ceiling again. Raise the debt ceiling, raise the debt ceiling, raise the debt ceiling, raise the debt ceiling again. 30 trillion in debt and yo, we back again. Still printing lots of money. And welcome back to The Middle. I'm Anthony Weiner. That is... Remy is what he goes by, the debt ceiling rat. This is not, <laughs> I think it's put out by Reason Magazine, which I think is like a libertarian magazine. It's pretty funny if you listen to it. He actually, it's the second version of that. He put out one, I think like 10 years ago, but he updated it with reference to the Saudi embassy and everything else. So welcome back. So we're talking a little bit today about debt and deficits 
in the context of the debt ceiling. And I, like I said, we're basically, you know, if you want to call and talk about that, 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Christian will set you up and get you on the board. Um, but I also was, was looking at this and trying to think of uh, how I can weave this into the theme of our show, which is always to look at ways for left versus right, left and right, to kind of come together in the middle, left versus right is what Curtis and I do it for. And I realized that we needed a mascot for this show, and coincidentally yesterday was the 30-year anniversary of Bill Clinton being inaugurated. And I want to hearken you back to those days and see if they remind you a little bit of today. I mean, he was elected, and then he quickly became one of the least popular presidents in modern times. By June of 1993, so basically six months into his first year, he had a 37% approval rating. Dropped faster. I mean, he's basically at levels that were lower than Trump, lower than, than Biden, who both had rocky first years. And he was largely responsible, many historians believe, and I certainly do. I was cutting my teeth in politics at about this time. For the Republican Revolution of 1994, 54 House seats were gained by the Republicans that you remember Newt Gingrich and the contract with America, eight seats in the Senate. I think there were even two senators. Um, I want to say Shelby of Alabama and Ben Nighthorse Campbell of Colorado who switched parties. So it was even worse. You had senators, Democratic senators just jumping the ship. It was so bad. So the GOP, the Republicans control both the House and Senate for the first time in 40 years under Bill Clinton. And not to mention that that crime was out of control and the economy was cratering. Okay, you remember the famous it's the economy stupid. Well, he hadn't done very much to help it. That remember that first year you had Travelgate, you had, you know, they the first the uh, first attempt at health care reform led by Hillary Clinton. It was a very rough year. So what happened then after that election in 1994? Well, Bill Clinton went on to become one of the most popular presidents in modern times. His approval ratings were 73 percent in December of 1988 when I had just been elected to Congress. And how did that happen? By the way, that was a midterm election that he actually gained seats. That's how well he was doing. Well, how did it happen? I would argue, and I think that history will agree with this, that he found his footing in the middle. Um, He balanced the budget four years in a row. The last time the budget has been balanced, he did it. Just to give you a little sense of context for you economics wonks out there, debt as a percentage of GDP when he was done, 33.6%. It's over 103% of GDP today. He cut defense spending. He cut welfare spending, signed the welfare reform bill. He raised taxes on the rich. He passed controversial trade bills to open up markets. He deregulated the banks. He reduced crime by banning the assault weapons, by assault weapons ban, increased funding for cops with a really tough crime bill. A lot of people criticize him for this before. And in fact, look, I'm not arguing that Clintonomics or his crime policies were all things that I loved. But he did them all with a Republican Congress. And I bet you one could not have done it without the other. He, it was called, I don't know if he called it this, but it's called a triangulation or meeting in the middle. But it was really a version about what we talk about here on this show all the time, that he pushed off his left flank, remember Sister Soldier and all that kind of stuff, and made the right people who were all investigating him all the time seem like the irresponsible ones because they were focusing on everything, everything in the kitchen sink except the issues that Americans cared about. Does that remind you of anything? It reminds me of where we are today and maybe how Joe Biden 
and the Republican Congress might want to take a look at that era after 19, after Bill Clinton was sworn in. And I think Bill Clinton should kind of be the mascot for the show, not because we think everything was great, but the whole idea of the show is that there's a lot that if you find that middle, that center that people look for in the country, it's not as loud and vociferous as the AOCs or the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. Um, and I will say this. I wouldn't say it then, but I'll say it now. It happened with the Republican Congress. The Republican Congress guy has to get some credit for this. So I think that if you're McCarthy, if you're the Republicans, you might look at this and say, hey, that's a lesson we can learn. And and so congratulations to Bill Clinton. You're the mascot for the show, The Middle. Congratulations. Let's go to some phones. Let's talk a little bit about the state of the economy or PANS or whatever else you have. Um, and uh, let's let's go first to Adam in Atlanta. Adam, thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, Anthony, good afternoon. So I just want to say that my concern is the servicing of the debt, because eventually in the coming years, more money is going to have to pay towards the interest, and it keeps piling up. So that means less money for other important uh, government services and more money to actually pay for the interest that we accrued over the over the past few years or over the past years. Right. That's right. my concern. And also it's um I think it's a Democrat and Republican problem to be honest. So because for example, look at the Iraq and Afghanistan wars on the Republican. We're still paying for that and that's gonna cost trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Yeah, hundred percent. Look, Adam makes two excellent points and thank you for calling Adam. Call us again. Look, the, the first part is absolutely right. As I said, 8% of our budget is just interest on the debt. Now, we were at a time when, frankly, we didn't have a lot of interest on the debt because debt was basically free. People were putting money into T-bills and getting nothing in return. It was pretty crazy. Um, but the second point he makes, there is plenty of blame to go around. We did two wars that weren't paid for. We did tax cuts in the middle of them. And, you know, we I would argue that one of the reasons I fought so hard for health care reform is ultimately we need to do something about the idea that something like 30 percent of every automobile we sold in the country, 30 percent of it was health care for the workers, that our health care costs have to be have to be managed as well. But I, I think there's there's plenty of blame to go around. But the part about the interest is exactly right. That's money that gets us nothing, it doesn't get us a new road. It doesn't go back into our pockets in any way. You're exactly right. Um, next up, let's go to John in Staten Island. John, thank you for tuning into the middle today. Are you with us, John? I think we we lost. Uh, I think we, we lost John. Uh, let's go to Tony. Hey, Tony, welcome back to the middle. Hey, Anthony, how are you today? I'm well. So my questions are: there's like three of them because Steve Moore has been trying to educate me. My history history is my major, but I'm trying to learn about the federal budget and state budget. So bear with me on the budget. Where does the infrastructure bills and omnibus spending bills that the federal government um, did this past year, where do they fit in? Like, how do they – where where are they in the whole? Well, there are elements – look, when you – there are elements of infrastructure that ultimately benefit us in the long run, but that's a cost. That's a cost to government. But that kind of cost, we actually get something for. That is something that you can argue. Look, debt in and of itself is not a problem. If, if you heard that someone had a mortgage on their house, you wouldn't say they were responsible. You, that's the way you pay for big expenditures. So infrastructure is the kind of thing you might want to have debt for. Now, the other thing is 
that in the omnibus bill was also some provisions that raised revenue. We talked about one last week, IRS agents and IRS officers and IRS employees that help us bring in revenue. That is a way that we we pay the bills. Remember, Republicans have a tendency to talk about it only by looking at the expenditure side. They They want to ignore the fact we have big tax cuts. A lot of Democrats are the opposite. They want to say just raise the taxes to pay for everything we're doing now and let add new things. I think both things need to be analyzed. One of the reasons I've had Jason Chaffetz on, on, on the show a couple of times, he and I used to work together, conservative Republican, because I think the idea that you can't find cuts in the budget are just ludicrous. But on the other side of the coin, 25 percent of all of our debt in our entire nation's history was uh, in the last four years under Trump because of that giant tax cut that wasn't uh, that, that, that that wasn't paid for. Um so, oh, we got John back. John, I think we lost you the other day uh, a little earlier. John on Staten Island, go ahead, pal. The point is when you get a tax cut, that means everybody gets their money back. Everybody makes money, increases money, which increases the revenue for the taxes. So that tax base goes back into, you know, the system. But my question is this. When Biden came in, he started saying that the rich people are all problem. The Democrats most likely say all oh, the rich people are bad. I mean, there's, there's FTX. I mean, we're looking for this guy, uh, Sam Freed, stole the billions and billions of dollars, and we haven't seen anything what happened with that. So he's, he's one problem. But the thing is this. When Biden says it's from the top down doesn't work, you know what? Elon Musk, Adam Bezos, uh, Jeff Bezos, all these guys make businesses, and then they hire millions of people. Explain to me when Biden says it's the other way around, because the only way Biden can yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll money I'll is ex- printing money. Yeah, I I'll explain it, John. That's a great, great call. I'll explain the difference. When you give a big tax cut to a billionaire or a multi-billionaire, what does he do? He might buy equities. If you give it to a company, they may buy back their stock. If you give a guy who's making thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year a few hundred dollars, what does he do? He buys a new set of tires for his car, goes to, goes to the nearest um, um, supermarket, maybe buys a steak. Maybe goes by his, his kid some shoes. It goes more directly back into the economy. That's why tax cuts for the middle class make a lot of sense. Tax cuts for super wealthy people, they've got their tires. They've got their food. They've got their shoes. So they buy things that don't stimulate the economy nearly as much. That's the thinking of the, of the Biden administration and those of us who say, if, the, if I want to ask the very wealthy to tax a little bit more and give tax relief to the middle class and those struggling to make it. We'll be back after the break on The Middle. Finding new ways to make change. Reaching across the aisle to work with both sides. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. And welcome back to The Middle. I'm Anthony Weiner, 10,000 Maniacs. That, that song is from 1993, the 30th anniversary of the inauguration of Bill Clinton. I think Joe Biden should take some lessons. I think Kevin McCarthy should take some lessons from Newt Gingrich. Well, not. It's funny. Newt Gingrich, the, where his caucus went sideways as they leaned too heavily into all the investigations. One of the things that made Clinton more popular was that Clinton kind of pointed to Congress and said, these people aren't serious, I'm trying to solve your problems. But 
Look, he balanced the budget. Last time that has happened, doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Until 3 o'clock, Curtis Slewa will come in. Uh, you know, Knowing Curtis, he's going to be watching the Giants game, I don't know, on the radio, listening to it on the radio while he's on the subway or something. But he's got some insight. Apparently, there is a chance that Rudy Giuliani... Our own Sid Rosenberg and one Eric Adams may be watching the game together. I think it's mythology. Anyway, let's go back to the calls. We're talking about some of the economic challenges uh, and the debt ceiling. Also, some folks still want to talk about documents. Let's go to Paula in Connecticut. Go ahead, Paula. Thank you for joining us on The Middle. Yes. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I am concerned about the value of the dollar. And, you know, I'm hearing all these rumors that pretty soon our cash is going to be Worthless, you might as well just put in a wheelbarrow and, and throw it away. Um, and I'm curious, uh, they're saying that what's just happened in Saudi Arabia is going to contribute towards that. And I thought maybe you could shed some light on that. I'm not sure really what happened with that. Yeah, I don't, there's, I mean, I, there are a lot, here's here's the truth, Paula. The Paula is that there are a lot of people who it's in their interest to make you feel insecure about the the U.S. dollar to make you invest in other things. And don't fall for the scare. You know, the crazy, amazing thing about our we talk about our economy being up, our economy being down. If you're the Chinese and you want to find a safe investment, you invest in the United, in U.S. dollars. If you are the Europeans and you have your own currency, if you if you if you, you know, you you come up with the euro and you think that's going to be how you're going to stabilize your economy, where do they invest their money in dollars? Right now, there's a reason why, even with inflation the way it is, you know, the TBO rate's only a couple of points. And that is because of the stability, the fundamental stability of the U.S. dollar. And that is why the debt ceiling conversation, although I think everyone is smart enough to know that it's kind of an, um, a, it's kind of a crisis that is manufactured. Everyone knows we have to pay our bills. It's, it's the main thing, the main advantage we have on the rest of the world. So I would say, there's no reason to be concerned about it. I know there are a lot of people. I had people advertising they're going to they invest in gold. They say invest in cryptocurrency to make a hedge against dollars. No, dollar is the ultimate hedge. It's the ultimate hedge, and we should be very proud of that status. And by the way, it saves us a lot of money because we have we we deal in dollars. Now, the dollar has relative strength up and down against other currencies, um, but um, but at the end of the day. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's pretty stable. Uh, next, let's go. Is this this is not who I think it is? Do we have J? Is this the J? Is this Jason from East Hampton? Is, he, is that who's on the board? Oh, okay. For it is. Is this Jason? Hi. Oh God. What do you What do Am you I want? Ready? <laughs> you know, I gotta say. At the top of the show, you kind of you kind of buried the lead. You slipped in as a preseason pan. In all the texts, all the SOSs you were sending me, clogging up my data plan, you never mentioned once that it was bought as a pre, as, as a preseason uh, pan, which is a totally different situation. Well, wait. First of all, first of all, we have this is Jason Weiner, proprietor and chef of Almond at Nice Hampton, Almond in Palm Beach, and whatever. Some he's some a DeSantis lackey, by the way. But Jason, I don't understand. I bought the pan at Target. What do you think? I went to like 
What do they sell it to? You didn't ask me that. I didn't know that that, that pans came seasoned and unseasoned. You, you, did a, you did a whole thing of like, hey, I discovered cast iron pans. Has anybody ever heard about these? You know, you have to season it. And let me tell you how to season it. And then you gave all kinds of crazy you, – you led people in all kinds of weird directions. Someone called last week, kind of set you straight a little bit. Tommy in Brooklyn and called. Now, and now you're complaining that I somehow – had a hand in smoking up your apartment. You apparently used too much oil. I said a little bit of oil, mainly salt. You said, well, uh, by the know, way, I mean, by the way, Bucko, you said a half an inch of salt. You know what salt yeah, is? A half an inch of, of kosher salt. But let me, but you, can I, can I, by, this is, by, you look up the dictionary definition of bad radio. Two brothers arguing about how to season a pan is basically <laughs> it. But let me ask you this question. Be, 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 I mean, you, you called, you know, all the way I'm, all the way from the Hamptons, and I appreciate you doing it. I, I don't question your expertise at all. But let me ask you this question. I'm told you, you you don't actually clean it with any water or any soap. Is that your theory? You just wipe it out with the towel? You, you, it's, you treat it kind of like you would a nonstick, like a Teflon pan. If it's seasoned correctly, where you can use something, you can use maybe a plastic scrubby on it, a little bit of water, but definitely no soap because that seasoning – is actually carbonized oil, and, of course, soap cuts through that. So that'll just get rid of your – so you'll just lose your seasoning every time you do it. Uh-huh. Uh, that's my that's, – that's what I'm thinking. But, look, I mean, honestly, you're not, you're not very good at cooking food, right? You should probably not cook food. You should <sighs> just – I mean, you should stay in your lane. I mean, you're, the updates it's... about my amazing nephew, Jordan, that's great. You obviously have some expertise in some other stuff. But food, I would just, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother. You I see, this is the thing. I wouldn't thing. talk about it. I wouldn't do it if I were you. This you're is just not. You just don't have that ability. You're everything that's wrong with foodies. You condescend to those of us who are just trying to do the right thing. Uh, you know, cast iron pan is kind of a big deal. But let me ask you, while I got you on the phone, well, let me ask you a couple of quickies here. One, when you're cooking fish, do you do it skin down or or flesh down? Do you put the skin against the? the uh, how do you do the fish? Skin down. Well, as a rule, whatever the side that you're presenting should go down first. So fish, usually you want to serve your, your, your fish skin up and you want it a little bit crispy. So I would go skin down first and then, and then you serve it skin up, of course. A little cheat is you hit it with a little bit of flour or maybe a little wonder flour before you go in the pan. It'll prevent it from sticking and it'll get a little more crispiness on your, on your skin. Huh, interesting. All right, let me ask you another one. Um, why do I always read in these things, let the meat come to room temperature before I cook it? What, how, how, how much difference could it really make a couple of degrees? Or is that a myth? Well, you know what, uh, any kind of, like a steak in an, uh, let's say you're putting a roast or a steak in an oven, it could cool down the oven substantially if you're going right, like a 35, you know, a two-pound, 35-degree thing. It's going to cool down your oven. You can end up steaming instead of roasting. And, eat, and same thing in a pan. If you're going to sear something, it's going to cool down the, the pan substantially, and it kind of, it helps us kind of, the, the even cooking throughout the piece of meat or the piece of chicken, whatever you're cooking, it helps to leave it out. People are afraid to leave things out for any extended period of time, but an hour or so on your counter is not going to kill anybody, huh. literally. All right. All right. All right. Let me get into some tougher issues. You have a restaurant in New York, a high-tax, high-regulation state, and you have one in Ron DeSantisville down in Palm Beach. Contr- compare and contrast what it's like to do business in New York and Florida. It was a complete headache in New York between, between the FDNY inspections and the health inspections 
and really, uh, you know, uh, uh, just a, a lot of a lot of regulation in the city. Florida, really, they call you first before you know the inspector. Literally, he calls me on myself. He was like, "Hey, chef, I'm going to come. <laughs> I'm going to come inspect the restaurant today. Is today a good day?" I mean, on the flip side of that, they don't inspect cars down there. So every every month or so, I see a flaming uh, car <laughs> on the side of the highway. Literally, I've seen like five in the past two years. They now, have no car inspections down there. That's interesting. Now, I should point out to our listeners: you used to have a restaurant um, on twenty on Twenty Second Street, and it closed recently. That was one that was open for for quite some time, called Amen. Jason, I really appreciate you calling in, even though you're calling in just to give me a hard time. But the takeaway is, I've got a. I don't remember what the takeaway is. You, you just, you, you just, you just think I should have, I should have bought a different pan, called someone different to get advice about it, and not listen and, to that person and, either. And cook, and cook less food. And cook less food. Uh, well, well, Jason Weiner, thank you so much for calling in. All right, so that wasn't as bad as it could have gone. Jason calling to giving, giving me a hard time about. It. I just want to stress that I, I, the, the idea of this pan that I like is that it's heavy and durable, and I'm used to these nonstick pans, and this is really give a very even – anyway, I, now, now Jason's made me feel self-conscious that I shouldn't talk about cooking because I'm not as good at it as, as he is. All right, well, let's go back. Let's get some uh, – seriously, I mean, I hope John and Margo Katsimatis were not listening to that segment where we departed from an important conversation about the future of our economy to Jason giving me a hard time because he thinks I can't – season a pan or i bought a preseason i thought a preseason pan was one they played before the regular season starts <laughs> i'm hilarious okay we got some time for some more calls before we go to the break uh let's go to mark in fort washington go ahead mark thanks for calling hey mr Wayne. I, I i disagree with most everything you say but i wish you had four hours you're really good on the radio thank you sir now would you agree that we spent four years investigating donald trump and 99 percent turned out to be bogus millions of dollars wasted you may not agree, but it's true. And now we're going to investigate a doddering, incoherent buffoon of a president who is acting like a foreign agent, whose son is globetrotting around the world, picking up bags of money. And you don't think we should investigate? I, look, I, I have said, and I appreciate all those all those things. I have said I have no problem if they want to look into the, the the Hunter Biden laptop, all the, or they can just listen to my podcast. I mean, it's being investigated. There's a U.S. attorney appointed by Trump investigating Hunter Biden, and he's got all the stuff. We'll see what happens. As far as the re, the, the investigations of Donald Trump, I read the Mueller report. Just all I can say is that if the, the, the they said that if they did not have a Justice Department policy against indicting presidents, he did all, a whole bunch of stuff. He's he's been impeached twice. But I look, here's my view on this. If we want to get stuff done, a bunch of investigations by the Republican Congress are not a great way. As I've said, as I as I led into this, that if they take a lesson from from if Joe Biden and the leaders in Congress take a look at what how much got done in the early 90s, I think both sides benefited from that. So that's so that that's that's what, what I think. Um, let's go to Sal on Long Island. Sal, you've got an interesting call. Go ahead, pal. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I believe that Barack Obama used Joe Biden to steal classified information. Huh. Now, I know maybe you don't believe that. No, I, I want to hear it. Give uh, me your. You should, this is an interesting theory. Go ahead. Let's hear it. So 
it's time, isn't it time just to go and search Barack Obama's house, maybe go in Michelle's closet and see what's there? Because we don't know. If we don't know, if we don't go and search his house, we will never know. <laughs> That's true. I, I, we we found we found we found classified information on a bathroom, on a garage, on a. Who was looking on those information? Who was looking there? We, well, we, we, we didn't find. We haven't found things. anything in anyone's bathroom yet, Sal. But I, I'm sure. Let's go. Let's go. Go look everywhere for these classified documents. If you want to hear a conversation about this that talks about this a little bit, listen to the middle unplugged episode thirteen, and I talk just. Just I'll, I'll give you one little fact from that podcast. 75 million classified documents every year in the United States. You, you know, and by the way, why we can't keep track of them, who the heck knows? But, yeah, if you want if you think Barack Obama set up Joe Biden by having documents in Michelle Obama's closet and Joe Biden's bathroom, you and Sal should get together and talk about that theory. That seems like like a pretty uh, um, um, like a pretty good Good theory. I mean, it sounds a little bit crazy when I say it, but I'm um, sure. And to take a victory lap, if this is the same Tommy in Brooklyn, go ahead, Tommy. It is the same Tommy in Brooklyn, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take a victory lap. I'll be first in, uh, the uh, the uh, seasoning to your brother. He's there you go. Well, we we we, we only have a minute, so let's make it quick. All right. It sounds like your brother's just lonely. He wants to come and teach you how to cook. All right. <laughs> it's, right. It, it's you know I know you said in time you know when when they when they give the middle class a, a tax cut they predominantly spend it back into the economy like shirts and clothes and food and tires. I want you to remember this though. Keep this in mind. The rich have that already. You know they already have that stuff. You said right. But they spend their money on businesses like real estate and so forth. Bringing you know they create jobs. They bring commerce to our economy, and that's. Basically, bringing it back to the economy. Yeah, as but well. Tommy, you so, know what? You know what the number one thing is. And thank you so much for calling, Tommy. And thank you so much for the great advice last week about the the pen. What they really spend it is is investment in equities. And yeah, you can say indirectly, but a lot of times they're investing in their own companies, just doing stock buybacks to drive up the share of the stock. It's just not as as efficient a way to really stimulate the economy when. When Amazon is getting a tax break to invest in Amazon stock. It's been a great show so far. Jason Weiner joined us. That wasn't the highlight, but it was great to have him. We'll see you on the other side as we wrap up the middle. It's the middle with Anthony Weiner, 77 WABC. And welcome back to The Middle. I'm Anthony Weiner. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's Arrested Development, another band that was on the charts in 1993. 30 years ago yesterday, Bill Clinton was sworn in, got off to a very rocky start. And then, as close as anyone has in the last 100 years, redefined the Democratic Party. Brought down crime. We balanced the budget for the last time that we've seen it. Probably not going to see that for a while. And generally positioned himself as a president who wasn't going to get distracted by what was going on in Congress, was going to just try to legislate, and did it with the Republican Congress. Remember, he passed he passed a welfare reform bill that he didn't want to pass. He, he said no, no, and then he eventually said yes. Arguably, the Republicans pushed him to do that. 
passed a pretty tough crime bill that he gets criticized for today. Did a ban on assault rifles, and crime started to come down. The biggest thing he did from my perspective, someone who's concerned about New York City, was that he passed he passed the uh, crime bill, which included something called the COPS program that I became the sponsor of when I joined Congress, that finally said the federal government was not going to stay on the sidelines in the battle against crime. They were going to put dollars in every police precinct around the, the country, particularly the big ones like New York City, and it helped bring down crime. And I think that Joe Biden can learn a lot from looking how Bill Clinton, because Bill Clinton was investigated left and right. They, you know, remember the story, the, the special prosecutor and everything else, the Republicans, you know, went after him hard. As a matter of fact, some people believe that the the real beginning of the partisanship that continues to infect our country started with that Newt Gingrich Congress. Now, it worked. Newt Gingrich took, you know, won the House for the first time in like 40 years. Um, but it did start a period of, of recrimination. But if you're if you want to take a lesson of what we talk about here on the middle and Joe Biden wants to try to figure out that lesson, you can look at how, how Bill Clinton did. That's why he's going. He's the mascot for uh, for the middle. Eight hundred eight four eight WBC eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We have some calls up on the board. Let's get to some of them. Ken and Fairlawn, thank you so much for joining us on the middle. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Okay, let me get off the speakerphone here. Okay. Okay, we good now? We are good. Fire away. Okay, yeah, I want to um, agree with you about the Trump tax cuts. They did not work out the way they were supposed to. But I always put a big butt on that one, because if you remember, the Kennedy and the Reagan tax cuts wound up giving us a lot more income. Of course, Congress spent it, but they wound up giving us a lot more income. There is an effect. But I think when COVID hit and all the lockdowns and the shutdowns and everything hit, I think that really, you know, took the bottom out of what was going to happen if, you know, again, as Kennedy, as it happened with Kennedy and Reagan. And that was unfortunate. Um, You know, in the future, who knows? But my problem with Congress, of course, is they're like a drunken sailor. If you give a drunken sailor an extra 50 bucks a month, he's going to go out and buy more booze. That's the first thing. (laughs) The second thing is is the whole issue of um, who did the tax cuts benefit? I live in Fairlawn, which was a very working-class, middle-class neighborhood when I moved out here in 77. Right now, there are three houses across the street from me that uh, at one time, I guess, had middle to lower middle-class people living in. And all three of them have, within the last six months, been gutted completely, have had additions put on, and are on the market for somewhere between 900 and a million bucks. Now, those people who are going to buy those houses, and a couple of them have been sold, obviously have more money, a lot more money than I do, and they are willing to move in. So I think, you know, I may agree with you with the ultra, ultra wealthy that they, you know, will go into all kinds of tax shelters and things like that. But by and large, I think the people who are eh, lower wealthy, they tend to spend the money. They buy the boats. They buy the uh, they take the they take first class on airplane flights. They fix their houses up. And they buy new houses, and they yeah. buy a summer house, buy a shore house. I mean, I mean, it is, buy- it, it is. I tell you, you want to know the most efficient government spending in terms of getting things into the economy? This may not immediately come to mind, and it's a great call, Ken. Thank you. Um, food stamps, because food stamps are money for food that go directly from a person who doesn't have a lot of money, and it goes directly to a neighborhood bodega or a neighborhood supermarket to buy food. Like it goes, that's direct. Uh, you know, now. Different taxes, different tax cuts have different effects. But one thing to remember about, look, there is that fact 
that the, that 25 percent of all of our debt was for was in uh, over 230 years was four years of Trump. But some of that was money that we had to spend, I would argue, because it was during covid. And at that time, the only sm- spending that was going on was government spending. You needed that spending to be going into the economy or else it would have cratered even worse. And we recovered much faster than any other country in the Western world because we invested all that government stimulus into the economy. The PPP program is a perfect example. I was running a company out in in Brooklyn at the time. If it weren't for the PPP grants, we would have had to lay off all those people. You just heard my brother Jason. He had the same experience at his restaurant. His restaurants had to close because the government said you've got to close over covid he was able to keep his employees essentially, you know, supported during that time. So they had money to go out and spend and to buy food and to buy clothing and everything else. So sometimes you need to spend money and it and 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 it makes a lot of sense to do that. The challenge that we have is to just give tax cuts for the sake of tax cuts sometimes is not the smart thing. And also, and I'm going to say this. I think we might have put too much money in and it might have led to our inflation. Now, it's hard to tell. I think that's an element of it. So it's a balance. No thing is all one thing. Tax cuts aren't all one thing. Some tax cuts are more efficient than others. Spending, some spending is more efficient. An earlier caller talked about, you know, how interest payments don't really get us anything, right? It's just paying, paying interest to someone who borrowed our money or that we borrowed money from. So I do believe that there's good and bad spending. Look, these are complicated things, and I think that they're nuanced conversations. And here on The Middle, we try to do that a little bit, try to give a little bit more context, and also try to look at examples of when these kind of things have been worked out right. If I had my druthers, I would say let us, let us increase the taxes on the very well-to-do and take those proceeds and do two things with them. One, give half of them back to people in the form of tax cuts, for the middle class and those struggling to make it into into the middle class, and then use the other part of it so that we have to borrow less money. Essentially, you know, that we don't have to then go out and borrow that money. We have the money. We basically come closer to balancing our budget that way. I think that tax cuts, I you know, when I ran for Congress, I'm sorry, when I ran for mayor, my, my signature issue on the platform was a tax increase for millionaires and billionaires to pay for a tax cut for the middle class and those struggling to make it, and the bottom 5% of all government programs in the city each year I would eliminate. And that's why I almost got elected. I didn't. But that's good for you. That means I get to be here with you every week. And I'm really grateful that you're here as well, here on The Middle. Coming back at the top of the hour, left versus right, Curtis Sliwa. Curtis and I are going to talk about the issues of the day. We're going to talk about what's going on in politics with the Asian community. This is Chinese, the Chinese New Year is today. The Lunar New Year, I believe, is today. And also we're going to hear what's going on with our The Love Affair between Sid Rosenberg and Eric Adams. I don't know. Thank you so much for being with us on The Middle. It's been my great privilege.